Let's pray as we turn to God's word. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Amen. I would encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 8. And go ahead and keep them open today. We're going to be flipping through a few different parts of the book of Revelation today. Revelation chapter 8. And I'm going to read verse 13, the, the last verse of this chapter. Revelation 8, 13. This, is, this verse comes um, at the blowing of, of the four trumpets from the throne. Um, the angels blow four trumpets, and the first four angels blow their trumpet in quick succession. And then at verse 13, uh, we have a pause, and it says this. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. Because of the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by the other three angels. Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blasts that are about to be sounded by the other three angels. Another translation says, terror, terror, terror to those who belong to this world. The blasting of trumpets 5, 6, and 7 are called woes that are going to come on the earth. And so in Revelation chapter 9, 1, the fifth angel blows his fifth trumpet, and then there is a description of these terrible sufferings that happen to the inhabitants of the earth. And then verse 12, it says, This first woe is past, and two other woes are yet to come. And then there is a blasting of the sixth trumpet, and there are more descriptions of suffering that comes on the inhabitants of the earth. And so we, we hear about those all the way through until chapter 11, verse 14. And that says that the second woe has passed. The third woe is coming soon. But something strange happens at the seventh trumpet blast. At the seventh trumpet blast, we don't hear a description of suffering that comes on the earth like we heard in Woe 1 and 2 in trumpet blast 5 and 6. Instead, this is what it says. Revelation 11, verse 14 and 15. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming soon. And the seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Why is this a woe? When the seventh trumpet is blasted, it says that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Why is that described as a woe, as a terror? 
These are famous words that are sung in Handel's Messiah, right? This is wonderful news. It's a piece of music that expresses this wonderful, glorious good news that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. But here in Revelation 11, it is described as a woe, as a terror. Why? Isn't the coming of the kingdom of God good news? So why is it called a woe, a terror, for those who belong to this world? That is the question we are going to answer today. Why is the coming of the kingdom of God called a woe? So we are spending four weeks on chapters Revelation chapter 6 through 16. These 11 chapters give us three cycles of seven events, the opening of the seven seals, the blowing of seven trumpets, and the pouring out of seven bowls. And I've summarized the the, the message or the challenge of these, uh, these chapters, Revelation 6 through 16, in this way. The challenge for us is, the question for us is, how do we remain faithful to the Lamb in a world that is feverishly following the dragon? And over these four weeks, we are looking at four promises that are given to us in Revelation 6 through 16 that come out of these chapters. And those are that the Lamb is sovereign over history, the Lamb is shepherd of his people, the Lamb is just in all his judgments, and the Lamb is victorious over all evil. Now, these 11 chapters are incredibly difficult to interpret. These 11 chapters are filled with beasts and dragons and images of locusts and the four horsemen of the apocalypse and fire-breathing witnesses. And as I was doing research on the book of Revelation and trying to find some other pastors who have preached through it, I find that a lot of them just kind of skip over 6 through 16 and get to 18 and 19 and 20 and 21 and 22 and just kind of gloss over it. They're very difficult to preach from. But the reason we are approaching these 11 chapters in this particular way is that there are different ways to understand and interpret these different 11 chapters and how they fit within God's history. But it seems to me that whatever interpretive approach one takes, everyone, everyone, everyone can agree that these themes are described in these chapters. Not every interpreter agrees on the historical timelines of Revelation, but everyone agrees that this book tells us that the Lamb is sovereign over all history. Not every interpreter agrees on whether or not Christians will participate in a great tribulation, but everyone agrees that this book tells us that the Lamb will be shepherd over his people. Not everyone agrees on how and when God's victory over evil will happen in history, but everyone agrees that Revelation tells us that Jesus is victorious. And today we're going to look at the good news that all interpreters of Revelation agree on, and that is that the Lamb is just in all of his judgments. These 11 chapters tell us that God is a God of justice. These 11 chapters speak about the wrath and the justice of God that is revealed in the world because of sin and evil. 
What is very clear in this book, and specifically in these chapters, is that God cares. He cares about injustice and evil. He does not turn a blind eye. He sees it, and he will deal with it perfectly and completely. In Scripture, we read that injustice and evil are responded to, are dealt with by God's wrath, by his anger toward evil and injustice. The holiness and perfection and righteousness of God require the condemnation of injustice and the destruction of evil and sin. In order for the kingdom of God to fully arrive on the earth, evil and injustice and sin must be dealt with. They can't simply be covered over. They must be addressed and dealt with. And the visions that John receives and passes on to us in these three cycles of seven make it clear that God sees the reality of evil in our world and that he hasn't ignored them and he won't ignore them. He will address them. He will deal with them. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Why is this a woe? It's because the wonderful and terrible news of Revelation is that the kingdom of this world is in the process of becoming fully the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ. The kingdom of God was established through Christ's victory on the cross where he disarmed Satan, the dragon, and the dragon is now raging. And so if we have aligned ourselves to God through faith in Jesus, then the coming of his kingdom is wonderful, glorious, good news. But if we have aligned ourselves with evil, if we have chosen idolatry, if we have chosen to give our allegiance to anything or to anyone else, then the Lamb's victory over evil, the establishment of his kingdom, is a woe. It is a terror. Because it means that we will not enjoy the kingdom of God, but instead will be destroyed along with whatever idol we have given allegiance to. Here is how Revelation describes the fate of those who deny the Lamb and who worship the beast. Revelation 14. Anyone who worships the beast and his statue or accepts his mark on the forehead or on the hand must drink the wine of God's anger. It has been poured full strength into God's cup of wrath, and they will be tormented with fire and burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. The smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. They will have no relief day or night, for they have worshipped the beast and his statue and have accepted the mark of his name. This is why the coming of the kingdom of God is called a woe, a terror. Because our eternal fate is bound up with whatever or whoever we worship. If we worship the Lamb, if we have given ourselves fully over to Jesus, then His mark is on our forehead, and our eternal life is safe with Him, and the coming of the kingdom of God is good news. 
But if we worship anything else, if we give ourselves over to anything or anyone else, then the mark of the beast is on us, and we will suffer the judgment that God brings on whatever it is that we worship. And that judgment is coming, and so it is a woe, a terrifying woe. Over the last few weeks, we again have entered into this section of Revelation that contains these three cycles of seven. The opening of seven seals, the blowing of seven trumpets, and the pouring out of seven bowls. And there are some interpreters of the book of Revelation, and, I, and I've talked about the different ways to that different interpreters come at this book, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about that next week and kind of remind us of those different ways to interpret Revelation. But there are some who interpret these three cycles of seven as a linear timeline of events. That at some point in the future, we will experience the seven seals one at a time, and then the seven trumpets one at a time, and then the seven pouring out of bowls one at a time. 21 events happening in succession. I suggest that there's something different happening here. The three cycles of seven, I submit to you, are not a linear account of future events. Rather, these three cycles of seven are telling the same story from a different perspective. Each of the three cycles of seven are retelling the story of God's work of judgment and his war with the dragon that's been going on from the time of Jesus' first coming until he comes again. So, let me give you a couple of examples. Revelation chapter 6, verse 1, tells us that the Lamb begins to open these four seals of the scroll of God's history. And in those first four seals, we read about these four horsemen that come bringing war and famine and death. Friends, war and famine and death is not something that we have to wait for to happen in the future. War and famine and death, that's just a day in the life on planet Earth. And it has been that way since Christ came. And will be that way until he comes again and makes all things right. Another example. A couple weeks ago, we looked at Revelation chapter 13. And in that chapter, it says that the dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. I suggest to you, I submit to you, that this is not an only one-time event that will happen in the future when there is a deal struck between Satan and some global ruler. I suggest to you that the dragon is ever and always seeking to make political rulers into beasts. Remember, I, I shared with you that interview that I had heard that week with George W. Bush. And, and in this, this just plain, affable George W. Bush kind of way, he just shared about how when he first came into office, in the very first few days of, of office, he experienced how intoxicating that power that he had really was. And he said how he just felt like, now I'm all-powerful, and now I'm all-knowing, and how I can do things that will benefit me and will benefit my friends. And how he had to resist that temptation throughout his presidency. I suggest to you that what he was experiencing was the dragon whispering in his ear, I will give you my power and my throne and my authority. Be a beast. 
The dragon is always tempting political rulers to be beasts. Asking them, tempting them to step outside the boundaries and the plans that God has given government and to take up authority that doesn't belong to them. And Jesus, the lamb, faced this exact same temptation when he was in the desert, didn't he? The dragon, Satan, came to him while he was fasting in the desert for 40 days and said, Bow down to me. I will give you power and a throne and my authority. Jesus, bow down to me and I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus, the lamb, resisted the dragon in that moment and responded with the scripture that said, Worship the Lord your God and him alone. And Jesus then went on through his life and his death and his resurrection to show us what self-sacrificial, God-honoring leadership looks like. And he showed us that all the way to the cross. These three cycles of seven, I suggest to you, are not a series of 21 linear historical events, but are events that have, we have seen happening in our world over and over and over again since Jesus rose from the dead, and they will continue until he comes again and makes all things right. So I want to talk a little bit about God's judgment in the Bible. This is a difficult and hard topic. But it's important one for us to talk about for a little bit. Talk about God's judgment. By the way, I wrote four sermons the last two weeks, and I've narrowed it down to one, I hope. In the Bible, God's judgment is revealed in a couple different ways. Sometimes God's judgment, we see, is expressed directly toward a particular person or a particular group of people because of their rebellion. And so we see that in the stories like the flood in Genesis, or the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, or the story of God's judgment on Egypt in the Exodus. In these stories, there are individuals or groups of people who are acting wickedly, spreading corruption, oppressing people, acting immorally, and God intervenes and stops it through a very specific, terrible act of judgment towards those people. That's one way that we see God's judgment revealed in the Bible. The Bible tells us that there's also another way that God's wrath, that his judgment is being revealed. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. There's another way that God's wrath is being revealed in the world. Romans chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 18 and 19. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men, who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. And then, as Paul makes his argument, he says this phrase three different times. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity and the degrading of their bodies. Verse 26, God gave them over to shameful lusts. And then again in verse 28, 
since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. The other way that God's wrath is revealed is when God turns people over to the consequences of their sin. When human beings are turned over to their basest and most evil desires, suffering and pain are the result. And those are two different ways that the Bible talks about the way God's judgment is revealed. Sometimes it's very specific at a specific group of people. And then other times it's, it's this general judgment that we see in the world as God gives us over to the consequences of our sin. Here's the, the, the hard truth in the book of Revelation. All of the acts of judgment, all of the suffering and the plagues and the famine and the destruction, they come from the heavenly throne room. It is the Lamb who opens the seals of the scroll and reveals God's plans and purposes for history, which include judgment as well as redemption. It is the angels that are around the throne that blow the trumpets that pour out and, and that also then pour out the bowls of God's wrath. The expressions of judgment and suffering and plagues and famine and war, they come from the throne room. That is a sobering and terrifying thing. The suffering in our world, the pain that human beings experience is a revelation of the wrath of God against human evil and injustice. We see in the book of Revelation that God's judgment, the revealing of his wrath, serves at least two purposes. God's revealing of his wrath and his judgment serve at least two purposes. First, that he is undoing evil and making the world right. And second, that he brings his judgment as an opportunity for repentance. These are the two reasons, at least two reasons, there may be more, but at least two reasons for why God reveals his wrath and pours out his judgment on the world. First, to undo evil and injustice and to make the world right. And second, as an opportunity for repentance. We're going to focus for the rest of our time on this second purpose. That the purpose of God's judgment is to call us to repentance. After the acts of judgment, at the blowing of the sixth trumpet in Revelation chapter 9, we are told what the purposes of these judgments are. Turn to Revelation chapter 9, verses 20 and 21. So after giving account of the, the fifth trumpet and the sixth trumpet blowing these two woes, I'll begin reading at verse 17 so you can get a bit of a taste of the the suffering that's described here in Revelation 9. And then at verse 20, I want you to make sure you definitely start tuning in 
It says this, the horses, this is verse 17, the horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes having heads with which they inflict injury. Verse 20. The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the works of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. The suffering that we see in our world and the suffering that we experience in our life is at least a In part, God waving a big flag telling us that this is not the way that the world should be. Repent and turn around. It's a wonderful quote by by C.S. Lewis. He says this, We can ignore pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. No doubt pain as God's megaphone is a terrible instrument. It may lead to final and unrepentant rebellion, but it gives the only opportunity the bad man can have for amendment. It removes the veil. It plants the flag of truth within the fortress of the rebel soul. We see the truth of this revealed very clearly with people who wrestle with addiction. Those who wrestle with addiction, you know that the consequences of your actions are the only thing that will bring you to repentance. Sam, do you want to come share? Because I know, know, brother, you can share with us. How that's been the case. The, the consequences of your sin are the mercy of God in the life of an addict. The suffering that they experience through broken relationships, through jail time, whatever those consequences may be, it's God's mercy saying, stop, your sin is killing you. Turn around and come to me. Because if an addict can get along in the world just fine doesn't suffer any consequences, they will remain in their addiction. It is the consequences, the suffering, the pain that God uses to bring repentance. And I suggest to you that all of suffering and pain in our life works itself out in this way, not quite as obviously and directly as the example of an addict who suffers from their consequences. But I want to suggest to you that all of us, the suffering and the pain that we experience in our life, is a part of God working in our lives to bring us to repentance, to remind us that our lives and our world is not the way that it should be, and to be this megaphone arousing us from our sleep and our slumber and calling us to repentance. Friends, the judgment of God on his world and in your life is not haphazard, it's not capricious. God's judgment in his anger is not like ours. It's not God flying off of the handle. I just can't take it anymore and wiping us off the earth. 
His judgment and the expressions of his anger are perfectly just. They are perfectly right. They are perfectly good. And if we could see perfectly from God's perspective, we see that his wrath is expressed like a surgeon's scalpel that is precise and aimed directly at the sin and evil in our life. There is no collateral damage when God expresses his anger. It is just, and it is right, and it is good. And someday, when we are able to see perfectly, we will all agree that his judgment was just and good. And so God's judgment is expressed in your life at times through pain and suffering in order to call you to repentance. Let me say something very clearly. Very clearly, I am not saying that your sickness or your trial is some sort of direct result of some sin you committed in your life. You didn't stub your toe last night because of a lie that you told yesterday. You don't have that heart attack because of something bad that you did when you were 16. That is a principle in other religions called karma, and it is opposed to the gospel. Rather, the Bible tells us this. That when sin entered the world, suffering entered into the world too. Sin leads to suffering and death. If you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. The suffering in all of our lives, physical, relational, emotional, is a consequence of the general curse of sin that every single one of us are subject to as we live in this fallen world. And this suffering and pain that we go through is God waving a big flag, speaking through his megaphone, telling us that this world is not the way he intended it to be. It's time to turn around to repent and to come and rest in him. Revelation 9, 20, the rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues, they, plagues, they still did not repent of the work of their hands. These sufferings that we experience in our world point us, are called to point us to repentance. Because the Lord is patient with us. He is gracious and, gracious and patient, patient, and right now the Lord's wrath is being revealed in all sorts of ways in our world and in your life through suffering and pain in order to bring us to repentance. So when you see famine and war and disease in the world today, that is some expression of the Lord's wrath against sin. It is the general curse of sin that all of us are subject to because of our rebellion against God. God's wrath is being revealed in terrible ways as he gives human beings over to the consequences of their sin. And he does that to tell us we are going the wrong way. The way we treat one another, the way our governments function, the way that we personally hoard in our greedy rather than being generous. These actions, because of sin, bring about terrible things in our lives and in the communities and relationships all around us. We need to repent and to turn around and submit to the Lamb because His kingdom is coming. And we want that kingdom to be good news and not a terrible woe. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Will this be a woe for you, or is the, this the best news that you have ever heard? 
Is it what you long for? Are you ready for the kingdom to come? Are you so attached to and tied to Jesus that you are eagerly anticipating his coming where he comes and makes things right? Or today, as you hear this message, do you fear a righteous, holy kind of fear that's causing you to come and to repent and to turn around and to come and to receive the good news that Jesus has for you? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we believe that you are sovereign over history, that you are shepherd over your people, that you are victorious over all evil, and we are reminded today that you are just in all of your judgments. Lord, help us to trust you today, to place our full faith and our full weight in your hands, knowing that you desire what's best for us, and that we will turn around following, from following our own ways, our own devices, our own ideas, our own plans, our own desires. And that we will turn to you. So that we will experience the coming of your kingdom as good, good news. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.